1: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
2: I could have warned Matt Hancock not to give Isabel Oakshaw his phone. For reasons I don't have time to go into, I certainly wouldn't have handed her my phone. Advice I proffer, free of charge, to Mr. Richard Tice. If you know, you know. But... As the co-author of Hancock's recent apologia, time to surf on his appearance in celebrity television in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, Matt Hancock is well and truly in the jungle now, tied to a tree and with several vipers descending upon him. Presumably in the course of their research for the book, Isabel Oakshaw obtained access one way or another to a set of WhatsApp messages which have now written themselves into the history books. It's probably the first time WhatsApp has made it into the history books. But the messages that are uncovered, unveiled between Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson, the chiefs of the medical and scientific apparatus In the British state, other ministers, senior members of parliament are so utterly damning that you certainly haven't heard the last of them. They will, of course, feature prominently in the public inquiry, which I have no idea when it will get underway or for how many years it will toil, but the vineyard will be full of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. Many things are revealed in these messages. The first is the state of absolute chaos, which prevailed at the top of the British state. And now that we can see them, we can more easily understand how our country was amongst the worst in the entire world. Despite all the efforts to spin Boris Johnson's government as somehow a success on covid we were a catastrophic failure. Not only did a very significant number of our people die, particularly old people who were sent into the canyons of horror, otherwise known as old people's homes, to make way in the hospitals for the expected tsunami of COVID victims. They were sent into these old people's homes not just to die themselves but to pass the virus on to others and kill them, staff as well as old people that were living in these residences. The crime, of course, does not end there. The crime of failure to prepare is one that the government and the opposition will completely fail to exculpate themselves from. I'm going to say something about the opposition here because it's very important that it's not just the government that is the scapegoat tied to the stake to be sacrificed. It's even very important, more important, that it's not just Matt Hancock who is the sacrificial lamb. It's vital to know that at a moment of great national trial, both the government, and the opposition parties. And because he's the leader of the opposition, at Keir Starmer's door must lie the indictment that the British state failed and its opposition, its political system failed to hold the government properly to account, to question vastly expensive uh, measures and decisions that were taken that cost not just lives, but almost uncountable treasure. The opposition played the role of supporting the government every step of the way, except where the opposition were egging the government on to go even further down a road that now looks disastrously misconceived. Many things are revealed in the exchanges that are published in the Daily Telegraph, which, of course, is uh, the publisher of choice uh, for stolen material. Not so long ago, they were the publisher of the MP's expenses, which sent several members of parliament to prison and which utterly transformed the landscape of the British people's faith or otherwise in their parliamentary representatives. So although the Daily Telegraph is far from my paper, I take my hat off to them for both of these publications of stolen material. It's a pity they cannot see their way to adding their voice to the demands for the release from Belmarsh of the world historic publisher of uh, the Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, the man who broke more stories than any other journalist in history. He was publishing stolen material, just like the Daily Telegraph did. And in all three cases, they were doing the public a service. The public interest defence in having done so is simply insurmountable, unbeatable. But one of the things that struck me as the father of young children who were marooned for more than one year of their young lives was the absolute clarity in the WhatsApp exchanges that putting masks on school children was not only not necessary, was not only useless, but was merely a piece of party political propaganda. It's exposed there where Boris Johnson concedes that the children don't need these masks, but Nicola Sturgeon, the erstwhile first minister of Scotland, is putting masks on her children, so we had better do so too to avoid a political rumpus with her. How shameful is that? Revealed also, and in the same vein, the rule of four, the rule of six, turns out to be scientific bunkum and was known to be bunkum, bonkers by the high hedians in the scientific and medical establishment and by the government ministers who were mandating it. That's important for me because our children were thereby precluded from playing football, from all extracurricular activities, for more than one year on an entirely bogus prospectus. Unnecessary and merely a political artifice. We haven't yet got to the issue of the vaccine, another of the trumpeted achievements of Boris Johnson. But if it is anything like the damning revelations of the early part of the crisis over COVID-19, well, it ought to lead to the imprisonment, certainly the trial of British government ministers and scientific and medical observers, advisors, the people who sat on the MIC, the medical industrial complex, who dragged us down a road that we didn't need to go and from which we may never recover. Not just the psychological trauma for so many of our people made to suffer, When politicians were doing the precise opposite, people were not allowed to sit next to their grieving mothers. When their father was in a coffin in a funeral parlor, people were not allowed, even the queen had to sit alone at the funeral of her late husband. The trauma that was visited on people who were not allowed to touch their dying family members, or who were done up like spacemen in medical wards trying to communicate with dreadfully ill members of their own family, whether children to speak to their parents or parents to speak to their children. The trauma of having your operation postponed indefinitely because of the failure of the government to prepare for a pandemic, the trauma of medical staff who were faced with millions of people of whom the pants had been scared. One of the many damning WhatsApp messages is a discussion in which Matt Hancock discusses with his colleagues when they were, I'm quoting, when they were going to deploy the new variant maneuver to scare the pants off the public. Now, of course, that was not a zero-cost scare. That scaring, terrorizing, terrifying the British population by their own government was costly indeed to the mental health of the people to the whole way of life of the people in this country. Uh, But of course, now that it's revealed, who now will believe any other message that comes from our government, that comes from the top echelons of the civil service? Not me, that is for sure. I myself deeply regret the extent to which I did believe them. I feel embarrassed humiliated by the extent to which I did believe them. I'll never believe them again, will you? Now that we know that the vaccine was not as sold, now that we know that the virus was not the deadly catastrophe that we were told that it was, now that we know that masks were useless, now that we know that the rule of four, the rule of six no sport no walking in the park you could you could walk in the park but if you sat down for a rest on the bench you'd get arrested all of it now looks utterly ludicrous absurd and it is indeed a shame that so many of us went along with it and i owe an apology to some of those not all but to some of those I, in effect, traduced for their scepticism, I would have been better being more sceptical myself. More of that, I'm sure, later. As you've heard me say before, the terrorist atrocity in the Manchester Arena in 2017 was a matter of great importance to me. I was less than one mile away when the explosion occurred. I was myself in the environs of the arena as the scale of the catastrophe unrolled. And moreover, I had seen this coming. I had seen the gathering in the great city of Manchester of a group of people, the Libyan Islamic fighting group, the clue was in the name, The Libyan Islamic Fighting Group were deliberately concentrated in the city of Manchester by successive British governments and their organs of the deep state, one of which, MI5, has decided or been decided for them that they must take the rap for the mass murder of 23 people by a person whose name I shall not utter, such scum, filth is he. I try not to mention his name. But I knew the community from which he sprang. And I knew that they had been deliberately concentrated there as an Islamic fighting group for future use against Gaddafi in Libya when the other organs of the British state decided that that was the right thing to do. The inquiry into events, now more than five years ago, has finally landed, and nobody paid it any attention at all. It's scarcely featured in the news and political landscape. Of course, MI5 made ghastly mistakes, mainly of failure to communicate with the police, the kind of intelligence about the family of the mass murderer that they were in possession of. But MI5 are not the main culprits here. The main culprits are MI6, whose decision to use this group of head-chopping, throat-cutting, heart-eating, Islamist fanatic extremists in an English city, as a kind of reserve army, a cell, a fighting cell in a great city in the north of England must take far more of the responsibility. And the prime ministers who oversaw that policy, starting with Gordon Brown, that paragon of virtue as he now struts around calling for other people, to be put on trial for war crimes whilst being co-responsible for the biggest war crime of the century, the invasion and occupation of Iraq. He's the joint defendant in a future trial, either here or on the judgment day. He was the man who began the descent to the disaster that exploded amongst all those innocent children in the Manchester arena. And his predecessors played a big role also. And did his successors. I'm talking about David Cameron, the man who appeared on a balcony hailing the arrival of democracy after the brutal murder and sodomy of the... Libyan leader, Colonel Gaddafi, the man who with little Sarkozy, now in prison or awaiting prison for corruption in connection to Libyan gold and treasure, David Cameron, shares responsibility. As does Theresa May, who gave them their passports. Gave them their passports so that they could come and go to a war in Libya where they learned the deadly skills with which they murdered all of our children in the Manchester Arena. The Royal Navy rescued the mass murderer himself and sailed him back to England, later to wreak such havoc and tragedy on the families of the 23 people who perished. There's so much more that I'd like to say, but time is against me. It is the mother of all talk shows. That I can promise you. Stay tuned.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
2: Were COVID lockdowns necessary, A, yes, B, no. You can vote on my Twitter, on my YouTube, on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community channel where 11,000 have already cast their vote. A big shout out, by the way, if you're watching on Rumble, let's get ready to Rumble. Let's all watch on Rumble. Let's all get involved in Rumble because... It has suddenly become uh, the second biggest portal through which people are watching the mother of all talk shows. And there was one week when it was not just first, but out the park first with a six-figure number watching the uh, show. Remarkable indeed. So you can vote. Were COVID lockdowns necessary? A, yes, B, no. Let me hit the phones to Lance in Canada. Go ahead, Lance. Hello, George.
3: Hi there, what would you like Hello. to say? Yes. Well, I guess on geopolitical parts and geofinance, like your your partners or the last guy said, I, I do believe that China is our friend. I mean, the way IMF loans and the way international banking works, seems to be there, these loans go out and then these 30% type arrangement fees go back to the richest people in The world people whose wealth is beyond what we even understand. Um, they have poor front men and you know who live near poverty, near the poverty line, like Bill Gates out front. But I mean, the real wealthy people, and and I guess we owe two sets of people we owe the Chinese who've made my life good. They you know they make cheap petrochemicals, they make uh, inexpensive televisions, they make you know I have great tools from China, and we owe this cabal of the ultra, ultra rich. Um, so I don't know, personally, I'd rather sink all the super yachts and pay the Chinese back. But, uh, but anyway, that's my take on the world. Well, it's uh, a very good take.
2: Uh, the, yeah, uh, the show will be coming from uh, China uh, pretty soon. Uh, and uh, I hope that uh, technically it dazzles as I'm sure uh, that it will. Uh, But I'll be uh, coming and going uh, to China quite a bit uh, over the next 12 months, if God spares me. And I view with horror this, as you uh, implied, this five minutes of hate uh, that people are being encouraged. to, Like 1984, George Orwell's uh, manual, training manual for uh, the world we have today where you literally scream hate at China. And of course, when you examine what is the basis for this hate, you can find not a scintilla of justification. We set up bases all around China and say it is to contain Chinese aggression, but they haven't set up any bases around us. They're not aggressing against us in any way, shape, or form. It is we who are aggressing against them. Their only crime is to have developed uh, a system, a political economic system, that is more successful than ours, and to overtake the United States already as the world's manufacturing leader, and to overtake the United States any day now as the world's biggest economy. That's the real crime of the Chinese people. All the rest is merely synthetic. It is manufactured. Uh, It's the only thing we can manufacture in the West is lies about other people. The only thing we can manufacture uh, in the West is war against other people. The only thing China doesn't manufacture is war. Just think about that. Back to the lines. Michael in Minneapolis. Always a pleasure. Michael, go ahead, sir. Hey, George. Always
1: good to talk to you. Um, I'm a little confused, though, about your your screed about masks. And you seem to be uh, stating that you don't think that masks work. And I'm wondering if you're referencing the new scientific review published in Cochrane that analyzed different Uh, Mass usage. And I think that, you know, a lot of people have gotten the wrong idea about what the conclusion of that study was, because they, um, they, they, they brought together information from 78 different papers, but only two of those um, were analyzing COVID-19 mass usage, and both of those found that mass worked extremely well. The other Papers cited in that study were studying influenza, which is not as contagious in co- as COVID-19. So I'm just wondering if you were maybe fooled a little bit.
2: No, I wasn't referencing that. I was referencing the uh, WhatsApp messages of Britain's Secretary of State for Health with Britain's Prime Minister and with sure. Britain's Chief Medical Officer. I commend them to you. I wasn't referencing any study. Uh, Cochrane or otherwise, I was telling you what our own ministers, who were mandating masks, were saying to each other in their WhatsApp traffic. That's sure. pretty damning, I think, Michael.
1: It is uh, that I mean that is damning, but it's also confusing because the scientific literature, by and large, you know, overwhelmingly supports the idea that masks work in limiting COVID nineteen usage and i can just say anecdotally you know i've hardly had you know i haven't even had a head cold since i started you know wearing masks going about you know shopping and doing things like that well
2: each to their so, own i've said uh, from the sure. very beginning one one crime of which i definitely was not guilty uh was the crime of supporting uh compulsion in medicine uh mandates in medicine vaccine sure. passports and and and, and uh criminalization of people who took a different view. I oppose that from the very beginning, and I oppose it now. And I would no more tell you to take off your mask than you'll be able to tell me to put one on. Michael, always a pleasure. Uh, I want to go to our first guest of the evening, a former U.S. Marine, a geopolitical analyst, founder of the new Atlas, and one of the biggest stars of the last 12 months, on the Mother of All talk shows and many other platforms. Because, of course, the war drags on. Brian Bellatic, welcome back to the Mother of All talk shows. Uh, I wanted uh, to take your counsel, your expertise, about where the land lies now, where the battlefield lies now, and what we might expect to happen next.
4: First of all, it's always an honor and a pleasure to come on. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, In regards to the situation on the ground in Ukraine, uh, we have a lot of Western analysts claiming that Russia is engaged in uh, what they claimed was going to be their winter offensive. But I, I have not heard any Russian military or political leader say that they were launching some major offensive what I see instead is Russia putting uh, pressure all along the line of contact on Ukrainian forces, uh, in in a way spoiling preparations by Ukraine to launch their offensive. And that is something that Ukraine has talked about. Uh, they've talked of nothing else but this spring offensive they have planned. Uh, and then, of course, Russian uh, forces, you know, the Wagner Group, they are encircling Bakhmut and Ukraine has invested heavily in trying to hold that city, and they are failing. And now it looks like they're beginning some sort of withdrawal. Of course, we, can, we cannot make any sort of prediction of how long that's going to take, because there's a lot of factors, including uh, uh, how well Russian defenses, as they close the encirclements, how, how well they can weather any sort of counterattack by Ukrainian forces.
2: I was going to ask you about Bakhmut. Uh, everything moves uh, much more slowly in, in this war. Uh, this is not the six-day war by any means uh, launched by Israel against its Arab neighbors. Uh, this, is, uh, th- this is a war of attrition now, isn't it?
4: Uh, absolutely. And uh, again, Russian military leaders, they have been talking about how the entire concept of what they are doing on the battlefield right now is to inflict attritional losses on Ukrainian forces. The whole point of putting pressure on Bakhmut and, and beginning to encircle it was to deliberately draw in as many Ukrainian forces and as much of their equipment as possible. And because of the political corner the United States and their proxies in Kiev have painted themselves into, they are obligated to do this for, for optics, and uh, it is working in Russia's advantage. I was just reading a Wall Street Journal article uh, right before I came on talking about how uh, the losses for Ukraine are so significant it it might actually spoil their spring offensive, which I believe is Russia's goal here.
2: Half a million casualties seems to be emerging as the consensus. A quarter of a million dead Ukrainians and a quarter of a million maimed and wounded and and crippled in many cases forever. Uh, this is uh, this is first world war level of losses, Brian, isn't it?
4: These are huge losses, and the unfortunate part is. Um, This is a proxy war being waged by the United States against Russia, and who is paying the cost for this proxy war? It is Ukraine. They're paying for it in blood. They're paying for it in in the destruction of their infrastructure, uh, and the United States is not paying anything at all. As a matter of fact, they're profiting from it, especially the arms industry, handsomely. And, And so there's no incentive for them to begin any sort of negotiation or stop this. Uh, And ideally, it would have been best if this never started at all.
2: Indeed, so Uh, we'd have to say uh, I certainly have no hesitation in saying the Ukrainians have fought very bravely uh, in this war. uh, One might have expected, given the caliber of their political leadership, the ramshackle nature of their polity, their, their state, uh the ragbag uh of far right and uh ultra right nationalists and even nazis in their ranks you would not have expected them to stand up to the russians so bravely and for uh, so long so let me ask you that question do you, do you do you acknowledge that point i've just made
4: i i agree with that i also believe it's Uh, a result of how Russia went about its special military operation. They could have uh, assembled many more troops before they began. They could have went in much more forcefully. They only began dismantling, uh, say, the power grid relatively recently. These were all things they could have done immediately, as as the United States would usually do uh, when invading another country. And so I, I think it is a combination of, uh, you, you know, the Ukrainians were already on a war footing. They had been fighting in, in the Donbas region for eight years. And uh, between that and all of the weapons that NATO flooded into Ukraine, and then also because of the way Russia began the special military operation, I think these are all contributing factors to why, why both sides are fighting so fiercely
2: now. Now, uh, if uh, Ukraine mounts uh, a spring uh, counter-offensive, uh, presumably that would be aimed at Crimea. Uh, is Russia well-placed to resist that?
4: It's, it's hard to tell unless we know the disposition of troops on both sides. That's always a, a question, so we have to keep that in mind. But what I will say is that uh, Ukraine, under much more ideal circumstances, launched their Kharkov and Kherson offensives, and Russia was able to uh, blunt and then eventually stop both of those. They have mobilized since then, they have mobilized 300,000 additional troops, and they've created extensive defensive works uh, in in these areas they are anticipating this spring offensive. I would say that uh, Russia is in a much better position to slow down and then stop any Ukrainian offensive and i believe the the losses on ukraine's side will be uh, extremely severe and then uh, again as i've i've said many times before russia their goal is to demilitarize ukraine it's not to hold on to territory they will give up territory temporarily uh, to preserve their their manpower their their equipment Because they know that if the Ukrainian army eventually falls apart, it doesn't matter how much territory they took in their offensive, Russia will be able to get it back. And we're actually already starting to see that happen around Kremena. Um, The Russian forces are pushing back into territory that Ukraine took during their Kharkov offensive.
2: Given that uh, the United States is paying no price, indeed, as you say, uh, is profiting from the sacrifice on the battlefield of so many Ukrainians. And given that uh, Zelensky will, let's face it, will not be running for president again, Uh, he's very unlikely to, uh, to even see out his presidential term. He's more likely to end up in exile, very well upholstered exile, in one of his many palatial homes purchased in the very short time that he's been the president of Ukraine. And so uh, nobody pays a political price for continuing to fight the war, is the point I'm making. Uh, There are no votes to be lost, uh, only lives uh, to be lost. And so you wonder, and I, I have wondered for a while, when the military officers... Perhaps not the top brass, they may be as corrupted as the politicians, but junior officers uh, say enough, no further. What do you think about that, Brian?
4: It's something that I I hope for. I think a lot of people hope for just just to end this senseless proxy war. It's not really being fought in the best interests of Ukraine. As a matter of fact, again, at the expense of Ukraine's best interests, but unfortunately, as for as long as Ukraine has a unified command structure, uh, something like that is very difficult uh, to to develop in the middle of an armed conflict. I, I think it's uh, very unlikely. I think something like that might start to happen as uh, Ukraine's fighting capacity in general begins to collapse, degrade uh, much more significantly than we've seen so far. Uh, something like that is a possibility, but I. I I wouldn't count on it.
2: Now, I was listening to Donald Trump in the early hours of the morning. If we park for a moment his unhinged attitude to China uh, and concentrate on his attitude towards this war in Ukraine, he went further last night than he ever has, and he's been going quite far. Uh, His critique of the war is utterly damning, Absolutely correct, in my view, but utterly damning. Not just, of course, of the Democrats who are in government, but the top Republicans that are effectively funding it and supporting it. Uh, Do you think that Trump will find an echo in the United States for these criticisms?
4: I think there is a, a growing segment of the, the Western public in general and also the United States who are uh, frustrated with this and uh, many other wars and proxy wars that the US either already has going or is planning. You, you just mentioned China, that, that's where all of this is heading next. Uh, so I, I I think so. He's, he says a lot of things like that, which is why people vote for him. But then unfortunately, um, last time he was in office, he surrounded himself with the very people who were uh, engineering and executing these wars and proxy wars. So uh, it's the it's sometimes the right rhetoric, but uh, again, it's it has a life of its own. And I don't think that elections, uh, anyone getting into the White House is going to change it at this point. There's this continuity of agenda that we've seen for years and years in terms of U.S. foreign policy, and unfortunately, I think that's going to continue.
2: Well, one of the most salient facts of the last 12 months has been the success of American policy in subjugating Europe. Uh, Little soldier Schultz, the German chancellor or pretender, uh, was utterly humiliated by Joe Biden, and uh, that's quite an achievement because... (laughs) Joe Biden can't bite his nails, as we say in Scotland, but he was able to effectively... There he is there on the, on, on the front uh, cover. Look at that. How damning is that, that front page of little Schultz with his, his rather cool-looking grandfather? Uh, uh, the, the success of having bent Europe to its will... You can't take that away from Joe Biden, really, if you're looking at it purely from short-term American interests. Brian.
4: I I agree with that. Uh, We have to remember, this is the U.S. waging a proxy war against Russia. The goal here is to weaken Russia, uh, undermine it, uh, divide and destroy it. But also at the same time, the U.S. seeks hegemony over all uh, allies and adversaries alike. They never—it was never in the cards for Europe to have any sort of independent foreign or domestic policy. It was always meant for the U.S. to dominate Europe as well as Russia, and and then it, this extends to Asia as well. They don't want to see any nation with a an independent, uh, self-reliant foreign policy. And I think they've demonstrated that if Ukraine is this proxy they're waging this war with. I believe uh, it it extends to all of Europe. Europe is also a a U.S. proxy, and we can see leadership in Europe, if you could call it leadership, making decisions that uh, favor Washington at the expense of uh, European nations and the people living there.
2: German industry itself, and soon the blue-collar workers that uh, operate it, will all be relocating to the United States. Biden officially offered to take German heavy industry, chemical industry, and so on, to the United States, where it will have a more stable energy supply, says the man who blew up Germany's previously very stable energy supply.
4: It, it's it's very obvious what they're doing. They're, they're eating their allies, and then eventually they're going to turn inward and begin eating themselves. This is... A cycle that we've watched empires do all throughout history. And we see the United States going down this, this same unfortunate path. Uh, they, they did not want Europe to have any sort of constructive relationship with Russia because they, they wanted to encircle and contain Russia itself. And so they've cut all of these ties between Europe and Russia. They're left with uh, the only option is getting much more expense, uh, expensive energy from the United States. And that, that will be indefinitely, that will never be as cheap as Russian energy was. And so, yes, uh, the, the industry is going to have to move to the United States. But I, I don't think that that is sustainable. And I don't think that Europe is going to recover. As long as this is the arrangement and America has uh, this influence over Europe, I think Europe is going to suffer.
2: Lastly, Brian, I'm always grateful for your wisdom. Uh, the U.S. tried to uh, scare people uh, that uh, there was an imminent transfer of weaponry from China to Russia. In other words, China dropping any pretense of being in any way neutral uh, in the conflict. That didn't come to pass. Why?
4: Uh, well, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, you couldn't blame China. For wanting to support Russia because uh, the United States has made it very obvious that uh, China is next. They are going to be the next target. And everything that the US has done to Russia, they are also going to do to China. Uh, but w- we've been watching Russia. They, they have a very significant military industrial capacity, uh, it seems to be doing much better than the, the combined military industrial capacity of the West. They have a head start. Uh, Maybe they don't even really need that type of support. Uh, China, India, many other nations around the world are supporting Russia in other crucial ways, helping them circumvent these sanctions that the U.S. is targeting, the U.S. and the EU are targeting Russia with. Uh, So maybe they, they really don't even need that type of support.
2: Brian Belatick, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Were COVID lockdowns necessary? 18,000 people have now voted. And here's the results so far on Twitter. Yes, they were necessary, 22%. No, they were not, 78%. On YouTube, it's yes, 18%. No, 82%. On Telegram, yes, 16%. No, 84%. And on the YouTube community poll, Yes, 19%. No, 81%. How utterly extraordinary. Well, let's hit the phone lines and go to Florida. Who wouldn't? There's Simon. Go ahead.
5: Good evening, Mr Galloway. While, um, whilst the world has been turning with other significant events, the uh, National People's Congress began yesterday in the People's Republic of China. And there have been some very significant developments The Chinese Premier, in giving his working report to the Congress, said that um, the government would pursue its policy of the Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative, which are part of the trifecta with what many people in Europe are familiar with, but not the other two components, of the Belt and Road Initiative. It is actually a three-legged stool. And to that end... He said that um, China would retain its fighting spirit in foreign relations with regard to its sovereignty, security, and development. When spokespeople were later questioned about the nature of this comment, which obviously can be interpreted in different ways, though from an American perspective, it's often seen as a quite warlike language. So sometimes when you're Going through translation, it's necessary to get an explanation of what exactly was meant. And the Chinese spokesman, Mr. Wang Chao, said at a press conference later that it was totally justifiable and necessary to make legislative efforts through its new foreign relations law to counter containment, suppression and interference from external forces. Well, uh, I mean, that
2: has the benefit of being true, doesn't it? I,
5: I, I would say that it's clearly from a Chinese perspective that's exactly what they want to do. This should be seen at the same time as they've announced that they're increasing their defence budget by 7.2% for the forthcoming year. But even though many people in the West are squealing about that increase, the Chinese defence expenditure as a percentage of the gross domestic product is still less than half of that of the United States.
2: Quite so. Uh, But uh, they're not going to allow themselves to be outgunned. Uh, They cannot compete with the United States military prowess, which could destroy uh, China many times over. But as the Chinese said, We know the U.S. could destroy China many times over. We are content that we could destroy the United States only once. Thanks for that, Simon. Hope it doesn't happen. Brian is in Canada, but on the Manchester bombings. Go ahead, Brian.
6: Yes, it's sort of uh, obliquely, but nevertheless, something rather important, I think. Uh, You mentioned something in passing when discussing the terrorist attack in uh, Manchester. Namely, you would never call the murderer by his name. Now, Mm -hmm. simple enough, I suppose. Perhaps not in the United States, where the media has proved incapable of such a concept. In every horrific case of mass shootings, instead of calling the perpetrator a deranged coward, they name him, publish his photo, and delve into his background. In other words, giving the deranged coward the fame he seeks, often enough in death, a product of a deranged coward's twisted mind. This, you know, if if they do smarten up in this respect, uh, will not stop this insanity. But thank God we can say, thankfully, these things, uh, mass shootings, are one case of an American exceptionalism. We can be grateful that we don't have. Thanks.
2: Yeah, uh, very powerful point. Of course, there are arguments uh, both ways. It's uh, a a matter of personal taste uh, because the massacre in Manchester, where my daughter was born, about the same time that. Uh, other people's daughters were being murdered Uh, my proximity to the scene of the crime my uh, two of my children live in manchester it's very very deeply personal to me and the hideous grotesque errors of judgment uh, that have been made all along the line here were errors of judgment that i was pointing out at the time there's no Uh, There's no hindsight uh, in this. I warned, in Gordon Brown's case, I warned him personally, man to man, about the dangers of concentrating in Manchester, in one part of Manchester, uh, a cell of Islamist fanatics just because uh, their enemy was also your enemy. It's uh, this... uh, ugly concept of my enemy's enemy is my friend, but your enemy's enemy isn't always your friend. Oftentimes, your, enemy, uh, your enemy's enemy is worse than your original enemy. Oftentimes, you are building a Frankenstein uh, monster uh, which will uh, be out of control when it is built, and that is precisely what happened, I'm afraid with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Pafsta Jat, what happened to Manchester United today, George? Well, I'm sorry that you wanted to rub it in publicly, but I've just online uh, on Twitter congratulated Liverpool on an epic victory of seven goals to zero, uh, proving that my team is still a long way from being back as some of us uh, have liked to think. But just like when Hungary humiliated England at Wembley 65 years ago or so, uh, they did England a favour, which woke England up and made them change their ways. And not many years later, England became world champions at the World Cup in 1966. So well done, Liverpool uh manchester united must be hurting i know that i and all my sons are Uh, michael is in seattle always worth
7: hearing on covid go ahead michael george uh once more a pleasure and a real honor to speak with you thank you i recognize that your socratic method on the on-air university is very beneficial and i can only speak personally um i uh have Appreciate it because I had called last time in regard to the general strike, and you helped to really refine my understanding of that from a different point. And when it comes to COVID 19, I can only speak from an anecdotal or personal experience. I've had some variants of it uh, four times since 2020. I had it in, in March 6, uh, 2020, and got very, very sick from it. So for me, I recognize and I'm speaking from a very personal and emotional perspective, but I've been very sick. So when the original lockdown came through, I was all for it because I have professionally done some uh, work in uh, population dynamics and epidemiology and biostatistics, and it seemed to me to make sense. And what helps, though, however, is in stopping everything, you have helped to educate. I guess the question is, is, to whom and by whom, or qu'e bono, right, who, who benefits from this process? And that is not something I think I was necessarily uh, aware of in the past. So the question is, is, is moving forward. There's a lot of great statistical data on viruses and virology and a lot of knowledge base there. And I'm afraid that uh, at times we may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, to, uh, to use uh, that term. What say you, sir?
2: Well, uh, I have not resiled from all of the views that I expressed, but some of them were plainly wrong. Uh, I was uh, guided. I'm, by, You know, I left school very early. I, I, I never went to university. I know nothing about science and nothing about medicine, but I trust my doctor. I trusted the Moats doctor, Dr. Ranjit, uh, who both of whom from the standpoint of their own learned uh, careers, uh, had a take on the matter, uh, which uh, perhaps we should get Dr. Ranji on again. Maybe he doesn't share uh, the extent to which I uh, have acknowledged that I believe on one or two of the important issues I was wrong. Uh, we really should, out of fairness uh, to Dr. Ranji, get him on to comment on that. But... Uh, I made the best judgments that I could uh, based on the experts that I listened to and trusted uh, and still trust, by the way. Uh, But uh, it's clear now that all of us, even our experts, were in part being misled. And it's uh, clear now that whilst COVID is a real thing, caused real suffering, including to you, Uh, caused real deaths, there was uh, a significant extent to which all deaths of people with COVID were being counted as COVID deaths when, in fact, it was the comorbidity uh, that was uh, actually killing the people. It's clear now, at least from the WhatsApp messages to which I referred, that uh, even if you were over 80, and had comorbidities, your chances of dying from COVID were around 6%. If you were young uh, with no comorbidities, your chances of dying from COVID were almost nil. Now, that was not clear. It was actually contended by many people that I insulted, and I feel bad about that. It was contended by them, Uh, But it was not revealed until now uh, to uh, have been the case. So they were keeping things from us. They were overselling both the lethality of the virus and the uh, efficaciousness of the vaccine. They were completely fooling us, uh, it seems, uh, notwithstanding Michael in Minneapolis, about... uh, why we had to all wear masks, why we had to cut down our social interaction, uh, groups of four, groups of six, no hugging our elderly mothers, uh, no, uh, no um, meeting up with girlfriends behind the uh, bicycle sheds and so on. They were overselling it, overhyping it. Uh, and, of course, all of these things taken together are bad enough. But when you calculate the devastating impact on the economy, well, that might end up killing more people uh, than the virus killed. That might end up making more people sick through poverty uh, than the virus made sick and
7: uh, made poor. Last word to you, Michael. Well, thank you, George, again. I think it's uh, uh, who benefits. And that is not necessarily something that I had addressed I would suggest not to be so hard on yourself as you are definitely making a decision in real time the best that you can. What I would suggest is that there is, when it comes to population dynamics and the the movement of viruses around the planet, uh, there are at times, I think, when stopping everything is an appropriate method or an appropriate approach, hence my advocation of uh, a general strike as well. When in a crazy world that is, is governed um, uh, by illogic and irrational decision-making, stopping everything to, to take an assessment of where we're at and where we want to go and where we need to go, um, I think is an important thing. So I would just and leave yours, with that. Uh,
2: yeah, yours has been an important call, Michael, both for what you said and what you induced uh, me to say. Thank you very much indeed. Here's a
0: cool fact.
2: It's only the legendary Tommy in Glasgow on the line. Go on yourself, Tommy. The floor is all yours.
8: alaikum
9: al-
2: wa al- Good.
8: Alhamdulillah. God bless all your beautiful listeners out there. Tonight, I'd like to talk on COVID. Now, I think I had it in March 2020. I certainly was tested positive in July last year. And I can attest as someone who suffers from a respiratory condition eh, that started with asthma, but with my prolonged use of marijuana over 35 years, brought to a close, I must say, just a couple of months ago eh, because of the severity of it. However, eh, for myself, I was always inquisitive of that fact of smoking that, that eh, you know, when you look at the decriminalised, uh, you know, when, when you can allow a drug like alcohol to be made uh, legal and another one to not to be. So it always led me to have a question in mind. So you have nothing to be sorry about for you having your opinions, George. Nothing to be sorry about at all. No one's perfect, uh, but the fact that you recognise it, all power to you. That, that takes a fine man to admit a mistake and to, to, to admit it to a million people. And for all the people out there to increase the fan base retweet to retweet, tell 10 to tell 10 and give this man the money because this show is amazing. Absolutely. And thank you for allowing me on, George. What I would like to say is for the vaccination on that side, my son, who's 22, I got my first two daughters, first two children, my daughters uh, vaccinated against MMR. The whole hype at the time caused me to look into it. Now, the thing was, was the 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 triple-loading of this vaccine. So I looked into it and paid privately for my son to have this vaccination. But the information that I got and was most telling and stopped me going to the the conventional doctor to to triple-load my son was that in America, which is highly litigious for the medicine, normal vaccines were coming in at 50 cents that every drug has to be paid for by the drug company. This one for the MMR was over $5. So then that's what cost me to pay £130, drive through Edinburgh and get it done. My distrust of the medical industry uh, when they parked my aunt who suffered from the yuppie flu at the time, uh, it was called the ME, uh, they parked her on these drugs and and it ended up taking her life, sadly, and the life of her her husband. And and for me, my disdain of the the medicine industry, you know, the privatisation of profit and the publication of debt is what happens for the military industrial complex from everything, you know, and, and from the medicine. So for me, yeah, COVID definitely existed because I felt it and I've had it and it's really bad. But however, did it come from a lab? And I would be told a lot of lies. Y- yes, for the BBC, I mean, I changed my phone every month, George, so that I could infiltrate these people because the, the lies that they use, the propaganda, is despicable. The, the text that you read out earlier on from Hancock and the government, I mean, how sick a country and a world we live in when we are told these lies, you know, and if you look at the economy, at the time when I was phoning the BBC and other outlets to say this is terrible just because I'm I'm a part-time economist, if 1% of the GDP happens as a a decrease, that takes just 10,000 lives in the UK, but the GDP decreased by 10% instantly, well, this was taken. Over a period of time, for the economic cycle, a hundred thousand people. So the untold cost of these dreadful lockdowns that never worked. Every single measure at the time for people like myself who are of the conspiracy mind that I just outlined out earlier on, George. I'm of that conspiracy mind for decades because you know I can't trust these people, and nobody should because when we are. Well, yeah. That is
2: the know, that's the that's the nub of it, uh, Tommy. Uh, the gravity. Uh, is and it didn't begin with this question it began with Iraq I think uh, that from the Iraq war onwards so in other words 20 years uh, if the government told you today was Sunday you'd have to pick up the newspaper if you were foolish enough to have bought one and check you'd have to if they told you that the sun was going to Rise tomorrow morning, you would still be in two minds as to whether they were telling the truth. And it is this blow which over 20 years uh, that all of our institutions, not just the government, not just politics, the BBC, not just journalism, uh, but the law, the judges, the police, the civil service, all of our institutions, one after the other, is revealed to be rotten inside and that's the cause of so many people's distrust on so many things thank you for a beautiful call tommy rob is in cornwall on the teacher strike go ahead rob yeah sorry mate i'm,
10: I'm ross ross actually sorry not rob
2: okay um, sorry go ahead
10: yeah that's right matt yeah it's appearance day today so it's an important day for cornwall um yeah i just want to talk about the teacher strike and what your opinion is really because um well i'm a teacher um and we've obviously had in cornwall and the southwest two days of strike action already and you know it's it's, a, it's an amazing position to be in really and you know you know pushing yourself forward and you know fighting up for the rights of not only the teachers but also the children i'm just wondering what your opinion was on the, the
2: strikes well i i have uh i have uh, five children in education Uh, If we count the youngest one at nursery, uh, four at school. uh, And uh, I wholeheartedly support the teachers uh, in their fight for uh, decent wages. If you think that education is expensive, try stupidity. What price stupidity? What price an undereducated young generation? Uh, What price an unmotivated and underqualified because the best qualified will go and do something else or even teach somewhere else. So I'm 100% behind uh, the teachers. I even uh, visited their uh, picket line uh, where I live. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly support them until the end. Last word to you, Ross. One of the things that
10: we're striking for is that we're concerned about the future, like you've just said, and the fact that, you know, teachers, the retention of staff is going to is reducing. The, the, the government aren't reaching their minimum standards or st- kind of amount of people that go into training either each year. And so it's a kind of a culmination of things, as well as the pay. Yeah. Obviously, the pay is important. But the, the reality is that, you know, in 10, 15 years' time, our concern uh, from the NEU is that there won't be enough teachers to fill the places. And, you know, it's not just the, the money. Obviously, the money is important. You know, you, you, you're you a professional teacher. You want That's to be gross. paid a professional wage. But yeah. the the issue that we have at, at the problem is a lot of the uh, media don't mention the funding or the, the, the money that teachers got last year, the 5% rise, as the government likes to call it, was unfunded, which meant that any... Um, extra pay that the teachers were going to get were going to be given from the actual uh, school budgets that were set that year. So they haven't been given any money from the government. So it's 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 a combination of concerns that we've got. And yes, we've done two strikes in the West. You know, very proud of all our members. And I look forward to um, you know taking the Well, uh, I'm I'm towards.
2: wholeheartedly behind you. Look, we hand over our most precious thing the most precious thing that we will ever have, our children. We hand them over uh, to uh, a stranger, actually. That's how much we trust them. Uh, And that stranger keeps them uh, for uh, seven hours a day uh, and teaches them things that we are not ourselves capable of teaching them and turns them out, hopefully, an educated and socialized individual. And we'd we pay more for a child minder up a, a tenement stair than we pay per hour uh, to our school teachers. So, more power to your pencil, Sir uh, Ross in Cornwall. Now, uh, Richard Medhurst was much praised earlier in the show and entirely correctly. He too was a speaker at the No to NATO, No to War event in central London. You should check out his speech online on YouTube and no doubt elsewhere. Richard Medhurst has followed the Manchester Arena crime and more importantly, the the crimes that lay behind that crime uh, very closely. And I'm glad that he's here to talk to me about it. Now, Richard, welcome back. Uh, to the mother of all talk shows. I said earlier, before you joined us, that uh, this crime in Manchester was located in a sick mentality of successive British governments who are prepared to support anybody as long as that anybody is against the other person that we oppose. My enemy's enemy is my friend? We're ready to support Nazis in the Ukraine, and we're ready to support ISIS and Al Qaeda in Syria and in Libya because we didn't like the ruler then, and that exploded. That chicken came home to roost and killed all our uh, beautiful children in Manchester, didn't it?
11: Yes, yes, it did, George. Thank you, thank you for having me on again, and it was uh, great seeing you at the. Uh... Uh, speaking alongside you at the No to NATO rally, uh, the, the Manchester bombing, I, as you said, I, I think it's another sick um, uh, consequence of, of our foreign policy because, uh, you know, everyone knows by now that in the 1980s, uh, when the um, Soviets were in Afghanistan, the CIA was funneling uh, stingers and weapons and and, and training to uh, the Mujahideen, who, who later branched off to become Taliban and Al-Qaeda um and uh you know you can look at history and you 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 see these these examples in the last couple of decades of of uh britain and the united states uh funding uh the enemy of our enemy and then when the when the soviets are gone uh the you know the ones that we funded become our enemy and uh you know they they're suddenly off their leash so to speak um the manchester bombing i think is is uh it's really astounding how they they uh Censored documents in the inquiry just to protect MI5, and the press say that well, MI5 could have acted uh, or may have had a chance to act on intelligence as if they didn't know who these uh, who who the bomber was. The thing is that that uh, the, the bomber and uh, his brother, uh, you know, they uh, they had gone back to Libya and back to the UK multiple times, right? So they they obviously the, the intelligence agencies MI5 knew who they were. And then after they commit this terrible, uh, this, you know, this terrorist attack in Manchester, uh, in the Ariana Grande concert, uh, they they say that well maybe we didn't know or maybe we didn't um, uh, uh, judge the risk accurately, and that's why MI5 didn't give anything to the counterterrorism police. I mean, th- this is this is uh, um, you know this is laziness at best. Uh, if we were talking about another sector, if we were talking about maybe uh, you know hospitals, in this case, they'd be fired because over and over. Uh, they they act like they they didn't know and they weren't sure and there, there's a whole list of attacks in Europe uh, and the United States that have taken place. You know whether we're talking about, for example, the Paris attacks. Uh, you know the police they had information about the Paris attackers uh, and their radical views before the attack, and they had even used SMS to, com- to to communicate with each other. SMS, which is unencrypted, so they 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 put in all this mass surveillance to protect us, quote unquote. They and then they let attacks happen. Uh, by people who, number one, they knew about, and number two, were communicating over SMS. The Brussels attacks, the Belgian police in that case, they also knew about these uh, uh, terror cells in 2015, so that's a year before the attacks. In Florida, the FBI, they knew about uh, Nicholas Cruz, Uh, the Normandale Park shooting, Colorado shooting. There's there's a long laundry list of the police knowing about these uh, individuals and letting them do this. Because once again, even if you say it's it's not their fault, then at best they are absolutely incompetent and should be fired because they are literally killing people. So not, at best they're incompetent, and at worst they are complicit by letting these things happen. And then they they uh, their solution to all this is more mass surveillance, um, you know, clamping down on civil liberties even more. So I think it's absolutely disgusting that that uh, they arm and train these people and then turn the other way and let them carry out these attacks.
2: Yes, uh, they didn't read Frankenstein, uh, at least until the end, uh, they Mm. didn't read it. If they had read it to the end, they'd know that you build these monsters and then they break free. That's why they're called monsters, because you cannot control Mm. them. And we have now done this since the 1980s. Arguably, we did it in Egypt in the 1950s by building up uh, the then uh, Islamist trend uh, because we hated Nasser because he nationalized the Suez Canal running through his yeah. country. Uh, and, <laughs> but leave, leave that aside. From the 1980s, we have been supporting, funding, arming, propagandizing for, one after the other, of the alphabet soup of Islamist fanaticism, most recently in uh, Syria, but prior to that in Libya. And it came back and murdered our children.
11: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, George. And the tragedy of this is that they, um, uh, some people then look at this and think it's a great opportunity to demonize refugees because uh, the Manchester bomber, I, I believe he was rescued aboard a Royal Navy ship. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not really the point here. The point is that he was allowed to leave the UK Go fight in Libya and come back to the UK and never stopped or questioned. That is the issue. It's not that he was rescued aboard a ship among other refugees who were, who could have drowned uh, and were in in uh, um, in duress because uh once again we are the ones creating the refugees they you know for for those who 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 uh claim that the, you know refugees are quote unquote invading uh the west it's actually the west invading those refugees countries and creating those refugees in the first place so you know if you don't want refugees then don't bomb libya and don't bomb iraq and don't bomb afghanistan it's very simple um but uh yeah, nevertheless i i think um uh Syria is, 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 again, as you raised, uh, another potent example of that, because uh, Turkey, who's another NATO member state, was letting all these foreign fighters come in and go through the border and let arms go through the border. Um, and, you know, they they uh, they basically had a, a rat line, what, what, what you call a rat line of weapons coming in from Libya and then, uh, all, you know, from people coming from Tunisia, from from the UK, from wherever to go and fight into Syria. And they turned a blind eye. And uh, I I, uh, fear that what's happening in Ukraine right now, because uh, anyone who knows their history knows that the CIA have been working with these Ukrainian Nazis since the 50s. Uh, I I fear that now what's happening in Ukraine is going it it has the potential to to mimic what we just talked about in terms of Libya and Afghanistan and Syria, where uh, Western intelligence agencies are sponsoring um, uh, Nazis in this case. Uh, or far right elements. And then at one point in the future, you know, they're going to let loose and start uh, spreading uh, their ideology throughout Europe and and committing attacks. I mean, why wouldn't they? We've given them billions of dollars in weapons. I I mean, it it kind of uh, what the CIA did with the Mujahideen kind of pales in comparison in terms of the the number of weapons that is that are being flown into Ukraine. Now they've got everything they want, maybe jets next. Who knows? Uh, So I I think that's also very concerning because once the war in Ukraine is over, where do all these weapons go? Who is going to have these weapons? What are they going to do with these weapons? I think that's a very, very concerning question. It it
2: is. uh, We had a a big enough problem dealing with Islamist terrorists, but at least you could recognize an Afghan from his turban uh, and his habits uh, from a cave in the Tora Bora. Uh, You knew uh, to be alert if they turned up at the... Door of your uh, local shopping mall, but these Ukrainians that we are arming and building up—they're already in Europe, uh, and uh, as as famously uh, was uh, implicitly accepted, they they are like us. They act like us <laughs> until you right. see their goose stepping, Sieg Nazi <laughs> tattoos, and we've given oh, them we've given them weapons and they're here already in europe
11: yeah george that's the funny thing because uh, uh people who um you know I, I people who are on the far right uh and, and who you know who hate refugees they'd say that oh they're invading us and they're coming here i mean for for afghan refugees and syrian refugees and and once again the the Vast, vast, vast majority are are number one legitimate asylum seekers. They're legitimate refugees, and and number two, they are they are coming because we destroyed their countries. Uh, uh, they had a very tough time getting in. Um, you look at the difference how Ukrainian refugees are treated, and and then uh, uh how Afghan and Syrian refugees are treated. That's not to say that what well, that Europe, especially countries like Germany, didn't welcome them. They did. But uh, they certainly uh, aren't giving the Ukrainian refugees a hard time, and I'm not saying that Ukrainian refugees uh, should have it hard. They shouldn't. That's the whole point. They're asylum seekers. They're they're fleeing war. They should be uh, helped and rescued. Uh, But um, as as you just pointed out, uh, you know we've let uh, those people who are concerned about refugees. Uh, what are they going to say about the ukrainian refugees who got it much more easily uh and uh, and then in the future you, you I I think uh, uh, you know there's a tiny risk that you might find among them uh people on the far right people who identify as nazis who who uh, are banderists who've continued that line of thinking since uh, world war 2 uh so uh, aren't they concerned about that because I haven't heard anything really from the ones complaining about Syrian refugees, complaining about uh, Ukrainian refugees having Trojan horses amongst
2: them. Uh, I don't subscribe to that thinking, but I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy. You will. You will hear. Richard Medhurst, as always, thanks for joining us on the Mother Thank of you, talk shows. Let's go to another Richard in Manchester on the bombings. Richard, welcome to the show.
6: Uh, hello, George. I'm sorry I've not spoken to you for a while. I listen every Sunday to your show, as you're probably aware. I'm a great okay. fan and you're a great man. And uh, okay. lots of things that you say are absolutely unbelievable and put the the, the, the ordinary media to shame because, uh, I don't know, I've lost a bit of confidence in the whole lot. Uh, but, George, um, I've been following um, Mrs. Sturgeon and... Uh, her spin team um, uh, avidly for the last two or three years and noticed uh, this great hate, hate, hate campaign um, which has been going on and uh, which is a part of you know, the fact that she's paying out millions for probably 50, 60 staff uh, to keep uh, the hate campaign going with these, this spin. Um, I was kicked off Twitter uh, quite some time ago. It doesn't really bother me. But uh, I commented on this uh, several times and all of a sudden I got a letter, no, uh, an email or whatever to say uh, in view of the fact that some of the stuff i would said was fairly controversial. It kicked me off. I fought against it for a while and I thought, it it doesn't really matter. But this this thing with the hustings not being allowed in Scotland to be shown live, I was disgusted at that. And my question to you is, if, if uh, David Linden came on um, w- with uh, Andrew Neil, oh, probably two or three years ago when uh, independence for Scotland was at its uh, sort of uh, zenith and we're going to get it and it will be done and, you know, uh, Mrs. Sturgeon, the, the great goddess, will, will, will get us there, and so on and so forth, and Indy Rev 2, and all this money that's gone missing and so on. Um, I, it, it, he said um, that uh, 3 million uh, immigrants would be allowed to enter Scotland uh, immediately, it, you know, it had been made a decision. Um, and uh, I just wondered if you got any comments to that, because 3.8 million people did not vote. SMP, as you're probably very well aware, and I'm sorry if I'm not putting this very clear.
2: No, no, How I've can- got your uh, yeah, I've got your I've got your point, uh, Richard. Just because of the hour, I'll hurry you uh, on. I don't have uh, a lot to say about the SNP because I'm conflicted. I hope it's Hamza, although if it's Hamza Youssef, who becomes the chief minister, first minister of. Scotland, it will be extremely bad for Scotland, but only in the short term. It will be more bad and potentially fatal for the separatist uh, cause and for the SNP. So uh, one part of me wants the worst. Now bring it on, bring this man about which... Uh, about whom I could say much, but don 't have the time to do so tonight, uh, bring this man to power. Let everyone see what the s n p really is. But another part of me, as a patriotic person that loves my country and and more importantly has to live in it uh, i i I hope he doesn 't get it because the short term chaos that he will cause as the uh, First Minister of Scotland will be so calamitous uh, for the people. So I'm conflicted. I spoke about it on Wednesday night, Rich. Uh, Look back at what I said about that. Maybe I'll deal with it again nearer the, uh, the witching hour when the new First Minister is picked in secret with no media allowed. In to witness what's being said or to question the people who are running for the office. Uh, Quadfly 360 sends £1.99. Best show on Sunday evening. Roll on Wednesday. How kind. Rufus Shinra sends two US dollars. Thank you for your reports. I truly value them. Thanks, Rufus. Colnago Cyclist, two US dollars. Greetings from Utah, and God bless Palestine. Mr. Ying, 78, 10 pounds. Gigi, you're like a hot factual knife cutting through the BS of the mainstream media. Keep up the great work, sir. Thank you, Mr. Ying. Paymon Alien sends 10 US dollars. Thank you, Mr. Galloway. John Flanders, 5 US dollars. Looking forward to your shows from China. My son works there, as do many Westerners. He does better there than teachers do here. Yeah, we'll be bringing two moats next month uh, from China. And uh, I hope you enjoy them. I hope you tune in uh, uh, to them. And as I say, be spending more time in China over the next year. Alec Gibbs gives £10. All the best. It was great to meet you at the No to NATO rally last week. I let your I, I knew your cousin Pat in Dundee and I let her know that you said hello. Thank you, Alec. And uh, God bless uh, Pat Boyle and her remaining family. Uh, Richard is in Bradford. Go ahead, Richard.
9: Hello, George. Hi. Um, I would like to talk about, you know, the next general election in the UK, which could yeah. be 2024... Yeah. Um, at the latest, May 2024. See, I was brought up to believe by me dad that the pen is my than the sword. So at the yeah. next general election, I think, like, in the 2016 referendum, we, the silent majority, the working class, should go put pen to paper and spoil our papers as none of these people that we elect represent us. So if, at the next general election, we go out and spoil our papers, you know, they'll have to read out how many spoiled papers there are, and then out of that can be born a new party called the Spoiled Party that represent the working class of the UK.
2: Yeah, I, I don't advocate that tactic, but it is a legitimate uh, tactic. Uh, I'll agree. Uh, who, else, who, who else are we going to vote for? I, I, I personally... Uh, and unless, I'm standing, unless, unless i'm standing unless i 'm standing myself i 'm going to have nobody to vote for i won't vote so, for the lesser yeah I won 't vote for the lesser of two evils because I couldn't possibly say which of the two was the lesser of two evils. and in any case, voting for the lesser of two evils merely allows evil to win and encourages evil. To become ever more evil because people will always vote for the lesser of two evils. So why not get more and more evil? So uh, spoiling your paper in certain circumstances becomes an entirely legitimate thing to do. But let's hope that we've got uh, better options uh, to vote for in the election. Now the polls closed. 20,718 people voted. Not quite a record, but pretty close to it. And here's the result. Were COVID lockdowns necessary? Yes, 22%. No, 78% on Twitter. And 3,230 people voted on that platform. On YouTube, 4,596 people voted. And the answer was, yes, they were necessary. 18%, no, 82%. On Telegram, 892 people voted, 16% of whom thought that the lockdowns were necessary, 84% thinking not. And on the YouTube community poll, 12,000 people voted, yes, 18%, no, 82%. What a remarkable poll, what a remarkable set of results, and what a remarkable legend has just appeared on my screen on her eighty-fifth birthday. Happy birthday, Norma, in Bristol.
12: Hello, George. Um, Hi. Thank you very much. Thank you. I am. Um,
2: I've been so. Bold hey, over we're singing. This weekend. Happy we're singing. We're singing. Oh. Hip, hip, hooray. Well done, Norma. 85 is oh. no mean age. That's lovely, George. I
12: mean, really, I'm really bowled over. Honestly, do you know, um, I wanted to say actually as well as that, I've got a very big thank you to all the people who responded to my birthday photo on Twitter. Seven Over 700, George. Wow. Over 700. And... um. I mean, I've been very flattered by all the attention. It's, I must say
2: you're looking you're looking well for eighty five, Norma.
12: Have you seen the photo? Oh my god, you've put there it on the screen. My granddaughter took it and I didn't even comb my hair. Oh dear. Uh,
2: yeah, you look fabulous. Now you were born therefore in which year?
12: Uh
2: nineteen thirty eight. Wow. 19- Before the war. Look at that you yes. lived through you lived through the second world war and here you are regularly talking on this great platform on the mother of all talk shows on the eve of what might be the third world war god for oh, no. uh, uh, norma did you do anything special on your birthday today
12: well uh i went for my husband can't hardly walk but we did go for a cream tea on friday and then on Saturday my family came down with chocolates and flowers and took my photograph and um, I mean to be honest I've had so much going on on Twitter that it's just it's it just blow
2: me away um, Well you're going to get I... more now you're going to get more now oh. lang me your <laughs> lumreek and many happy returns norma in bristol Thank the you. legend 85 years young uh, last call, I think, given the hour. It's Kenny in Acton, another legend. Go ahead, Kenny.
13: Hi, John. How are you doing? Okay. Uh,
2: all right, sir. All right. You were looking fabulous when I saw you last weekend. You've lost. You've been uh, on you that. You too. Keto. You look
13: like you've lost a good bit of weight as well.
2: I have, but not quite as much as you. You looked. You look like Elvis.
13: Thanks to the keto diet. <laughs> well, you looked now- like Elvis. Thank you George, I much appreciate that Well when I seen you I was 81.7 kilos I'm now down to 80 kilos I've actually lost 15 kilos in 9 weeks And I can attribute that to the Atkins diet Or the keto diet, whatever you want to call it But uh, I just wanted to oh currently right now I'm actually 95 hours into a water fast The last meal I had was Wednesday night I'm on my fourth day So I want to speed up the fat loss Because I've got another 5 kilos to go You know yeah, yeah, are you sure you should
2: be doing it quite as fast as that, Kenny? I mean, there's no hurry, is that? Yeah.
13: Well, I want a six-pack for the summer coming in, George. <laughs>
2: <laughs> don't we all, mate? Don't we all? all but right, they're overrated. I've got one, but, but they're overrated.
13: <laughs> I, uh, well, I'm more lean now than I've ever been since I was about 20, so that's, that's made me feel good about myself. You know, Very I'm good. the leanest Very I am good. since I was twenty. But I would—I I just first wanted to say that I agree with Donald Trump when he said that China should pay reparations for the damage that they've caused. So, since we've now discovered that actually came leaked for the lab in Wuhan, who's
2: who's discovered uh, that?
13: Well, that's looking like the most plausible well, scenario. It's well, not, <laughs> it's not plausible Dow to me. Yet.
2: It's not plausible to me. And when you say okay. things like they, they have discovered, this yeah. presumes some they up there, some deity up there that that has uh, pronounced on this. The jury is well and truly out uh, on on this point, Kenny. If you well, want, we'll my view, what... it, it, come, it came from Fort Ettrick, a US military base.
13: No, I, don't, I don't know about that. We'll see how, what else comes in the coming months and years, you know.
2: Anyway, give us a, a song to finish off. Okay, here we go.
13: Well, since my baby left me, I found a new place it's to so dwell. Well. It's down a lot, no. It's down at the end of Lonely Street at Harbrake Hotel where I'll be. I'll be you so lonely, baby. Well, I'm so lonely, I'll be so lonely, I could die. Well, although it's always crowded, you still could find some room for broken hearted lovers to cry the gloom and be so They'll be so lonely, Mm. baby, they'll be so lonely, they could die. Wow, bravo, Kenny. So long, with-
2: that was a good turn, but it went on uh, too long. Uh, thanks, uh, Kenny. And be careful with these water diets for three days at a time. That alarms me a little bit, I must say. Mind you, with all the trials and tribulations uh, in the world today, I suppose the fate of Kenny and Acton's. Six-pack is the least of our uh, problems. The war drags on. The danger of Norma seeing a third world war, having been born before the first, uh, before the second, rather, is uh, is very real indeed. Some people ask me why I'm preoccupied by this. I was born in the shadow of the Second World War. Winston Churchill was still the Prime Minister of Britain when I was born. The wartime rationing still existed in the year that I was born. And the world in which I grew up in was entirely shaped by the outcome of the Second World War. And there were many causes of instability, not the least uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Uh, when I was still a small child but old enough to know the importance of the things my parents were talking uh, so somberly to each other about uh, just out of my earshot. And so I lived and grew up and became a man and became politically active in a world that was entirely shaped uh, by the Second World War and its horrors and its loss. Of the best part of a hundred million people, and it's for all those reasons uh, that I dread the idea of World War Three. Not least because the weapons used in World War II were, would be like pea shooters compared to the weapons uh, that would quickly become uh, prevalent in any new world war that breaks out over ukraine and i just don't think ukraine is worth it and neither do you if you are honest and truthful i've put it to you uh, many times let me do so again on the eve of kopiansk being liberated which it will be in the next few days or hours it's not important to me what a town i've never seen could not spell and until recently could not pronounce what side of a line Kupiansk is. It's of no importance to me, Kupiansk. I'm not prepared to die for it. I'm not prepared for you to die for it, for my children or your children to die for it. Kupiansk has been in four different countries in the past hundred years and if it becomes five different countries, or remains four, is a matter of such minuscule importance to me that I can scarcely credit that so many people appear ready to go into the end of humanity over it. This conflict should never have started. Now that it has, it's better that it were quickly ended. And as the Western countries are not going to allow the government in Kiev to negotiate a political ending to this conflict, then it's better that it is settled militarily as quickly as possible and with as little, new, more bloodshed than has already been spilt. I gave you numbers earlier. I don't know if you quite grasped them. It is now more or less official that 250,000 Ukrainians have been killed with another 250,000 wounded, maimed, crippled, with another 30,000 missing, almost certainly also dead. They're burying Ukrainian soldiers, three in the same grave, to minimize the optics of an ever more gigantic war graves, cemeteries spreading across the Ukrainian heartland. I don't hate Ukraine. On the contrary, I always loved it. I was often there in former times. It's heartbreaking to see the suffering of the Ukrainian people. And it has all been for nothing. It has all been because the political regime there has placed the bodies of Ukrainian men and women at the disposal of the president of the United States, Joe Biden, who's currently sitting with the chancellor of Germany Olaf Schultz on his knee, bouncing him up and down and probably sniffing his neck. That's all I've got time for, but the good news is, if God spares me, I'll be back on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9pm UK. Please be there. Please, as Tommy urged you to, tell 10 to tell 10, bring at least one other viewer for me next wednesday that's my challenge to you thanks for watching good night